Father, I pray that you would um, change our lives and our eternity as we get a glimpse of heaven this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to really focus in uh, on the beauty and the glory uh, of the future that you have in store for us. Uh, So fill this place with your presence. Uh, Give us ears to hear and hearts to believe, uh, eyes to see that which is so dim uh, here on this earth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here's where we are. We're working our way uh, through Matthew's gospel. Uh, It is Holy Week. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the temple teaching, and there's some opposition. First, uh, the Pharisees who hated Herod and the Herodians who loved Herod came to test Jesus and trap him with a question about paying taxes. And he answers the question brilliantly. They couldn't trap him. So next, the Sadducees say, well, let let us give this a try. Sadducees did not believe in angels or demons or miracles or the afterlife. So they come up and they ask Jesus a question. They say, all right, you who believe that there's a future resurrection, that bodies are going to come out of the grave and people are going to live again. You who believe that, Jesus, we have a question for you. Little little scenario we want you to think about. Let's say there was a woman married to a man and he dies without children. And the Old Testament says that his brother is supposed to take her and have a child to perpetuate the name. Well, the second brother marries her and he dies. And then the third brother marries her and he dies. All the way, seven guys all marry her. Whose wife will she be in this resurrection that you believe in? <laughs> and they... Uh, They think they've stumped Jesus. Now, uh, last week, we looked at the whole picture. Today, we're going to zero in on the next verse, but here's how he begins to answer. First of all, he says, you're wrong. We talked about the fact that you can't believe in Jesus and be a relativist at the same time. Relativists believe everybody's right. Whatever you want to believe, that's your truth. He says, you are wrong. Jesus makes it clear there's right and wrong. They were wrong. He was right. Secondly, he says, because you know neither the scriptures. That refutes, we talked about postmodernism. Postmodernism says that we can't even read a text and understand it because we're so caught up in our worldview and the, uh, the writer of the text is caught up in his worldview that we really can't make sense of, of uh, what people write. And Jesus says, no, um, I'm holding you accountable to know the scriptures. Postmodernism is wrong. You are accountable uh, before God to understand the scriptures. And then the third thing he says you don't know is the power of God. They were naturalists. They're like people today who say, I'm a naturalist. The, uh, the only thing there is is, is uh, matter. The spiritual world, come on, heaven and hell, not. Uh, the, the world uh, started when the Big Bang blew up and then planets formed and then we evolved into what we are today and life just goes on as it always has. And for you to say that there's going to be a resurrection from the dead, that's impossible. And Jesus says, your problem is you don't know the power of God. Our God is not limited by naturalism. He can intervene supernaturally. So in one sentence, Jesus refutes relativism, postmodernism, and naturalism. Then he gets into 
uh, what things are going to be like in the future. Now, their question is, if this woman who was married to all seven brothers, uh, who's going to be married to her in the resurrection? And he says this, verse 30, For in the resurrection, the next life, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. So, simple answer, um, there is no marriage in the next life. Now, before you take that statement and run with it, here's what I want to do. Um, I want to spend today talking about what heaven, uh, what the next life is going to be like. Now, a lot of people have taken this verse to mean, well, there's no marriage in heaven. It's just you alone in your spirit on a cloud with a harp bored to death. And you're going, well, I guess it beats hell, but not that much. Right? I'd rather be there than in hell, but it's going to be boring. I'm not really looking forward to it. So here's what I want to ask. Will we be disembodied spirits floating around in isolation, bored to death for all eternity? Answer, no. Now, um, this is a book by Randy Elkhorn that... It's a 500-page book that I just finished up this week. And um, I, I, I think it's a good book. I do think he speculates about some things, like that your pet will be there, and there will be coffee in heaven, and you can scuba dive without air tanks, and things like that, okay? Um, but having said that, I think it's okay to speculate I want to know if you can go scuba diving without an air tank with a cup of coffee and your dog, right? That would be cool. <laughs> but, but realizing that he's speculating, um, I think it's okay to speculate as long as you just say we're speculating, okay? Um, so I, I would encourage you, go ahead, get the book, but realize that there's some speculation going on. Now, um, so I got a lot of the information from, uh, from this book, and I really, what I think he does it's a great job of informing us about where we're going to be spending eternity. We spend very little time thinking about eternity. You know, if you were going to go on a vacation to Peoria, wouldn't you at least Google it to find out what it's like? You know? No. <laughs> so, so here we are. We're going to Google heaven and see what heaven is like. Now, here's my, uh, here's my working thesis. Our ultimate existence will be in bodies, on earth, with loved ones, without sin, never bored. You like that? Okay. Um, so the, the, the presenting question is, well, because we aren't married, is it we're not going to know our spouse or, or what? And we'll get to that in just a second. But there's actually one, two, three, four, five, six things we want to cover. First, our ultimate existence. Let's talk about our ultimate existence. This is how most people view the next world. Here is the timeline of, of, uh, of reality. And when you die, you, your spirit goes up on a cloud. You're up here in heaven and that's how you'll be for the rest of eternity. Well, what I want you to understand is the Bible makes it clear 
that there are stages of eternity. All right? What do I mean by that? Well, this is the current age. And it is true that right now, when you die, your body goes in the grave, your spirit goes up to be with the Lord. Right? Um, then we are told that Jesus will return. There will be a resurrection of your body from the dead. And there's a thousand-year period called the millennium where Jesus will rule on this earth. And you will be alive, you who believe in Christ, in a resurrected body. Then at the end of that millennium, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, but it will still be an earth that you will live on for eternity with the Lord. A lot of people go, what? I always thought you just floated in a cloud for eternity. No, let's take a look at, at uh, first of all, the millennium. Okay? Here at the, in the book of Revelation, it says this. I saw, John says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. So here he sees uh, the souls, the immaterial part of believers who, who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they came to life. There's resurrection. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's the, you know, what's this millennium? Millennium means a thousand. Thousand year reign of Christ. There's a resurrection at the beginning of the millennium. We reign with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead, the unbelievers, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So there's a second resurrection at the end of the millennium, but this is the first resurrection that he's talking about. So, um, now, not everybody believes, not everybody interprets it that way. Some people take the millennium to be the current age, and the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection. Being born again, you're being resurrected. And then at the end, there will be a bodily resurrection. Um, But the word resurrection doesn't mean spiritually coming to life. It means bodies coming from the grave. So, I do take this to mean that here we are now, our spirits go to be with the Lord. When he returns, he brings our souls with him. Our bodies come out of the grave and we are given new bodies. Our souls are reunited with our bodies and we enter into this millennial phase for a thousand years. Okay? Then what happens after the thousand years? This is chapter 20. This is chapter 21. Then, John says, I saw a new heaven. And a new earth. It's going to be a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We'll talk about what that might mean in a minute. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. So here, heaven comes down to earth. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So heaven comes down to earth. It's the new heaven and earth 
together in bodies on earth with the Lord. Strange concept that some people have never even thought of. Okay, So, first of all, um, there's phases of eternity that are yet to come. And who knows, after this, what God might have planned for a billion, 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 trillion, gazillion years. Okay? Now, if there's a, uh, a resurrection of the body, all right, then we need to realize that we will have bodies. We will have physical bodies. Where does Scripture teach this? Well, in the very passage we're studying. The Sadducees didn't believe in a future resurrection of the body. They said, in this resurrection you believe in, who's going to be married to who? And Jesus says, for in the resurrection, he, he defends the fact that there's going to be a resurrection. In this bodily resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels, or like angels in heaven. That doesn't mean you are an angel. You get your wings when you hear a bell. No. You're not an angel. Angels are different creatures than humans. But we are like the angels in that they don't get married. You won't be married, but you will have a resurrected body. Now, Jesus says this in John 5, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Right? There will be uh, a resurrection. Jesus' voice will sound and everybody will be resurrected and be given bodies. Now, the question is, what's your body going to look like? Okay, Pay attention, Ryan. All right, here we go. Now, the Corinthians, the Corinthians did not believe in a future resurrection. They were Greek, and they had been influenced by Greek philosophy, which was kind of Gnostic, which says, spirit good, physical body bad. They were influenced by Plato. Okay? Not the little dough you make clay figures out of, but the philosopher, Plato. Okay? The Platonic view is... There's the ideal world, and then there's the real world. And the real world is physical, and it's kind of, eh, it's not the best thing. Uh, but the ideal world is, is what matters. So the Corinthians were kind of mocking Paul about the resurrection of the body. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. <laughs> you go, why, is he, why is he mad? Well, they were mocking him, and he is now going to mock them back. And he says, um, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow a seed, you put the seed in the ground, it's this ugly little piece of nothing. You put it in the ground, it dies, and then a beautiful flower comes out. It's got to die to produce beauty. He's saying the same is true with your body. What is sown, what is put in the ground, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Once you come out of the tomb, you never die again. Right? 
It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Uh, some of you know Elizabeth's dad is in the nursing home, and uh, there are are very sad uh, cases of people just uh, in dishonor. Their bodies are decaying. When they come out of the tomb, though, they will be glorious. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to go work out in the gym because... Right? Okay. Now, this one throws some people off. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, some people go, oh, spiritual means you're a spirit floating around. No, 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 no. Spiritual does not always mean immaterial. So some people read this, they go, it is sown a natural physical body. It is raised a spiritual immaterial body. No, spiritual doesn't always mean immaterial. For example, in the book of 1 Corinthians... Paul is talking about the manna that God fed to the Israelites in the desert. And he says, and all ate the same spiritual, same word, spiritual food. Does that mean they ate invisible bread? You know, immaterial bread? No. They ate real bread. Well, in what sense is it spiritual? Not that it's invisible, but it's supernatural. Natural food, you grow, you bake, you eat. Supernatural food, you don't grow. God provides it supernaturally. But it's not an issue of being material or immaterial. Okay? So what he's saying here is your body, it's weak, it's degraded. Uh, it goes in the tomb, it dies, or hopefully it dies before it goes in the tomb. Um, but when it comes out, It never dies again. It's glorious. It's powerful. It's supernatural. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think we can take some clues from Jesus' body. Jesus' body was put in the tomb. He came out. But he was human. He was healed. He he, He had scars. But he was perfectly healed. Strong. And... He was recognizable as Jesus. It wasn't a brand new body. It was his old body resurrected and restored and perfected from the dead. It was male. There will be male and female. Okay, But uh, notice, he was not an invisible ghost floating around. He was a real human being with a real body. Okay, God created human beings. And our ultimate destiny is not just to be spirits floating around, but human beings with human bodies, imperishable, glorious, powerful human bodies. Now, if we have bodies in the future, where are they going to hang out? On earth. On the earth. We already read about... In Revelation 20, the new heaven and the new earth. In Isaiah, it talks about, uh, Isaiah 65, For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, let me pause right here. Even though this refers to the new heaven and the new earth, the passage is going to go on to talk about death. 
there still will be people dying in the future. So some people say, well, this can't be talking about the ultimate new heaven and new earth where there's no more death. This must be talking about the millennium where those who are resurrected will never die, but others will enter the millennium in human bodies and they will die. Other people say, no, it's talking about the, the ultimate new heaven and new earth, and it, the, the reference to death here is metaphorical. I, I don't know which one it's talking about, but it's here on earth. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. They'll go, oh, the poor kid. He only lived to a hundred. And the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Okay, so he, even though he's a sinner uh, and he lives to a hundred, uh, that's, uh, that's just so common uh, that a hundred years is young is what it's saying. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. So there'll be animals. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So uh, I think the idea here is now there's ferocious animals. The millennium, if it's talking about the millennium, uh, animals will no longer kill one another. Lion lays down with the lamb. Maybe your puppy will be there. I, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's a very physical world. Now, um, will this earth be destroyed and will we be given a new planet, the new heaven and the new earth, or will this earth be renewed? Right? Now, for years, um, most of church history, people read... 2 Peter 3.10, and thought that the earth, the new earth, will be a totally brand new planet. Because, it says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. So all of space will be dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be, now the King James and the New American Standard say, burned up. So for years people said, oh, the whole universe will be destroyed, including the earth, which will be burned up. But, as you know, there's different Greek manuscripts, and they found older manuscripts where the word is not burned up, but it's exposed. In other words, the rest of the universe will be destroyed, but the earth will be judged, revealed is the idea. Here's the ESV footnote. Uh, it says, some translations read, will be burned up, because some Greek manuscripts have this wording. But the earliest and most reliable manuscripts have, will be found, indicating with this reading that the annihilation of the earth is not taught in this passage. Scholars have debated whether the New Testament speaks of an annihilation of the present cosmos and the creation of a new universe, or whether it indicates the transformation of the present cosmos, including the earth. The latter seems more likely. And it is consistent 
when Christ's body came out of the tomb, it wasn't a new body, it was a restored body. When your body comes out of the tomb, it won't be a new body, it will be a resurrected, restored body. Your old body will be perfected, but it's, it, there's continuation. So the idea here is that the earth will not be brand new, but it will be restored. Here in uh, Acts, it says, Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. So, um, whether the earth will be totally brand new or a restored earth, I would lean toward it being a restored earth. Now, here's a little thing for those of you who are stuck on evolution. Um, you read in Genesis where God creates the earth and then later on he creates the, the, the uh, sun and the stars and they go, come on. Like the earth is created and then God creates the rest. We know about from the Big Bang that, it, that, well, the Big Bang is a theory. But do you believe not Genesis 1, but 1 Peter 3 that says God will isolate this planet, destroy the rest of the universe, and remake this planet. You go, oh, yeah, I have no problem with that. So if he can isolate this planet and destroy the rest of the universe, why couldn't he create this planet and create the rest of the universe? Why is one easy to believe, but the other you don't buy? Now, if you don't buy either of them, then you're on your own, okay? Whatever you want to believe. Go find a guru and go to, you know, become a Hindu or something. But if, you, if you're going to believe the Bible, the Bible talks about a new earth, isolated, remade, and the rest of the universe destroyed. I can buy, I can believe it. Why? If you don't believe it, it's because you don't know the power of God. If, as Jesus said in our text today, if you do believe it, it's because your God can do whatever he wants with this universe. Okay? Now, um, Elkhorn does give an interesting illustration. He says, well, um, isn't there some kind of fiery judgment coming upon the earth? Yes. Well, wouldn't that totally destroy the earth? And he gives this illustration from Mount St. Helens back in 1980, the year I graduated from high school. There's Mount St. Helens, there's the volcano, and this is all burnt out, destroyed area. And people said, for hundreds of years, it will just be desolate wasteland. Well, here it is today. Beautiful. It's all green, it's restored. God can torch the planet and redo it better than the past. And there will be probably continuity. Do you know that in the book of Genesis, before the flood, the Tigris and Euphrates River are mentioned. And after the flood, the Tigris and Euphrates River are mentioned. Now, there's two other rivers we don't know about because the, the world has changed. 
there will probably be continuity on this earth. You will probably be able to go to the Great Lakes. There will probably be a Mississippi River. There will probably be familiar mountain ranges on this new earth. Again, we're speculating here. But there is the principle of continuity. Now, what about your loved ones? You will be with loved ones who are in Christ. Okay? Um, the Thessalonians wrote to Paul. They were disturbed. They said, we have lost loved ones. They're dead. Will we ever see them again? Now, here's what Paul writes. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. That's dead, right? That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. As he comes back from heaven, he will bring the spirits of those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, this is new revelation that Paul is giving us, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, uh, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So the spirits come back, and the dead bodies rise from the grave. They're first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. Now here's where everybody gets rapture fever. Oh, they're going to be caught up in the air. And will it be pre-mid or post-tribulation? Don't worry about that. Here's what Paul is saying. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. They were saying, will we ever see our loved ones who have died again? Yes, encourage one another. When the Lord returns, they will be resurrected. You will be raptured and you will be together. Right? Now, uh, but I won't be married. Now, that's good news for some people. Right? But Randy Alcorn, um, let me read what he says and you can decide uh, what you think. All right? He says, the Bible does not teach there will be no marriage in heaven. In fact, it makes it clear that there will be marriage in heaven. What it says is that there will be one marriage between Christ and his bride. Paul links human marriage to the higher reality it mirrors. Earthly marriage is a shadow, a copy, an echo of the true ultimate marriage. So he says, you will be married to Christ. But now, what about your spouse? He says, my wife Nancy is my best friend and my closest sister in Christ. We become, will we become more distant in the new world? Of course not, he says. Jesus said the institution of human marriage would end having fulfilled its purpose. But he never hinted that deep relationships between married people would end. In our lives here, two people can be business partners, tennis partners, or pinochle partners. But when they're no longer partners, it doesn't mean their friendship ends. What about our children? What about my relationship to my daughter and sons-in-laws and closest friends? There's every reason to believe we'll pick right up in heaven 
with the relationships from earth. We'll gain many new ones, but we'll continue to deepen the old ones. I think we'll especially enjoy connecting with those we faced tough times with on earth, saying, did you ever imagine heaven could be so wonderful? The notion that relationships with family and friends will be lost in heaven, though common, is unbiblical. It denies the clear doctrine of continuity between this life and the next and suggests our earthly lives and relationships have no eternal consequence. Okay? So, um, don't be thinking, can't wait to get to heaven, get away from that spouse, those kids, and that's this church, right? No. We're stuck with one another for all eternity. <laughs> so, now, actually, there's some implications there. If we're going to be with one another for all eternity, should you be gossiping and backstabbing people today? No. You should be loving one another. Right? Okay. So, uh, we will be with loved ones. Now, um, how about this? You go, but my spouse drives me crazy. My kid drives me crazy. And for all eternity, I'll be with them? All right, here we go. Next thing. You will be, and they will be without sin. Okay? Um, Now, my wife's pretty perfect right now, but she's going to get even better. All right? 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now, the question is, does he make us perfect so we can see him? Or does our seeing him make us perfect? I I don't know uh, the answer of how it works. But we are promised that we will be like Christ. This is what Romans also teaches. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's cleaning us up now, sanctifying us now. But in the future, we will all be sinless like Jesus. That's that's the ultimate goal. uh, In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, look at this. And those whom he predestined, that's an eternity past, he also called in time, And those whom he called, he also justified. That's the moment you believed. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That means in the future, you will be perfect like Christ. Okay. Now, uh, interesting question people ask. If we can't sin in heaven, does that mean we become robots? I mean, how's he going to pull this off? And by the way, Satan sinned in heaven. And Adam and Eve sinned in a perfect environment. You ever think about this stuff? How is it that he can guarantee that we won't sin in heaven? Will he make us like robots? My speculation is that his holy presence will be so attractive 
so overwhelming that we will have no desire to sin. In fact, we sang the, the Jude doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Here, um, this says that he is able here on earth to keep you from stumbling. And I believe the, the concept here is from falling away. In other words, I take this verse to mean once you're saved, he is able to keep you saved. Right? When you get to heaven, the same power that is able to keep us from losing our salvation is able to keep us from sinning without turning us into robots, without violating our volition, um, but he will keep us. Now, interesting thought. Those who believe you can lose your salvation, what's their argument? Well, if you can't lose your salvation, then God is messing with your volition. He's turning you into a robot here on earth. So we have to preserve human dignity and say that man can lose his salvation. Well, to be consistent, you would have to say you can lose your salvation in heaven too. You go, oh, no, no, once you're there, you're safe. Well, whatever principle God uses to keep you safe in heaven, can't he do that here on earth to keep you from losing your salvation? It's got to be one or the other. If you can lose your salvation here on earth, you can lose it in heaven. If he's able to keep you in heaven, is he too weak to keep you here on earth? See, it's not about you. It's about him and his power and his glory. So, do we become robots? No. Now, last thing. Will we be bored? No, we will not be bored. Okay, the picture a lot of people have, again, is the guy in the cloud with the harp. It's like, a, it's like an unending worship service, kind of like this morning. Right? Just going to go on and on and on and on. By the way... Um, I admit, some church services and some sermons are boring, okay? But let me just kind of go on a little rabbit trail here. Why are you bored when you hear the Word of God preached? Well, it could be. It's just a bore. I mean, there are boring preachers, okay? But I want to I wanna suggest something. Maybe it's not the preacher. Maybe it's you. 1 Corinthians 12, or, uh, 2.14 says, The natural person, the unsaved person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The unsaved person can't help but be bored with the Word of God. It's like, like my wife likes these cooking shows. And I try to watch them with her. And two minutes in, I'm texting, I'm surfing. On, I just, I don't care. You can make them as glitzy and I don't care. Just, I appreciate you cooking. But the cooking shows I'm totally bored. I have, and the non-believer is bored with the word of God. The believer, on the other hand, says, 
this is awesome. I can't believe what we're learning today. Give me more. Give me more. And the other one goes, when is this going to be over? So the bored person, I'm going to challenge your salvation. If being bored with church, if worshiping God and hearing his word preached good, goodly, goodish, how do you say that? Well, well, okay. Someday we'll get somebody here who can do it well, right? Um, let me put it this way. If you're bored in this church, something's wrong. I'm not, I'm not elevating myself, but if the word is preached, I hope with passion, we, we worship the Lord. And if you're bored with that, I would maybe stop criticizing, could we do this better or this better? Or boy, I sure miss this church over here or this church. Maybe it's you. All right, enough of that, okay? Um, will you be bored in heaven? Well, if you're not saved, ooh, you will hate heaven, but you won't be there, right? Well, I guarantee you won't be bored in hell either. Right? No, that's... I'm sorry. Sorry. We don't baptize babies, but we should be okay. Right? Okay. It's like the little kid who was in science class and the teacher was kind of mocking the Bible and the little girl says, well, when I die, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to heaven and I'm going to talk to Noah. And the teacher says, well, what if he's not there? And she says, well, then you can talk to him. (laughs) All right, so will you be bored? Let me just give you a blitz of things that will fascinate you in heaven. First of all, in Revelation chapter 1, John has a vision of the glorified Jesus. And after he sees him, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. He is going to be so awesome, so holy, so glorious, that that we will want to fall down before his glory. You know, um, in the Old Testament... They had to put a veil on Moses' face. You know why? Because the people couldn't handle the glory that was coming off his face. Now, he went up on the mountain, and he wanted God to pass in front of him. And God says, I can't do it in my full glory, but I'm going to cover you. I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover your eyes, and I'm going to go in front of you. And then you can look at my backside. So he comes down, and his face is shining with the afterglow of the glory of God. And that is so awesome that the people say, we can't look at the refracted glory of God off the suntanned face of Moses. Imagine if, it's, if, if, if that is too powerful, too awesome to look at, what will the full front-on glory of God be like? You will not be bored. Okay. Now, what are we going to do? We're just going to be sitting in pews singing the whole time? No. We're going to rule with Christ. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You will be ruling the universe. In Luke 19.17, here's the parable of the minas. And he said, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful 
in very little, you took this investment and you doubled it, you shall have authority over ten cities. Now, what is this talking about? Some people think that in the millennium, you will be granted, some of you will be presidents over nations. Others of you will be mayors over ten cities. I'm hoping to be Mayor McCheese and get a McDonald's somewhere. Okay. When we're, we reach the final state with the new heaven and the new earth, it says they will bring into it the glory and the honor of nations. Even in the final state, there will be nations on this planet. How it all works, I don't know. Some guys have it all figured out. They've got charts and they've got maps and they have it all. I, I don't have it all figured out. I just know it's going to be good. Okay. How about this? In 1 Corinthians, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? What he's saying is people in the church were suing one another. He goes, what are you doing suing one another? Don't you know you're going to judge the world? Can't you find a couple people in a church to sit down with people in the church who aren't getting along and work it out, is what he's saying? You do not know that we are to judge angels? We are going to sit on the throne with Christ and judge the angelic and the demonic world. That's boring. Will there be food? This is what you've been waiting for, Steve, okay? Here we go. <laughs> Guess what? If you have a physical body, you need to feed it. Jesus, after he was resurrected, remember, he ate fish. Really good fish. In heaven, you will have perfect taste buds. Matthew 8, 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table. That's sit down at dinner with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, you get to talk to Abraham. I want to talk to Noah about the ark. I want to talk to Paul. And we do it over awesome food. Golden corral, but really good. Okay? (laughs) But won't we be bored? Well, here's why you won't be bored. Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. In other words, he is infinitely awesome. So why must we live for eternity? Because it will take eternity to explore the infinite awesomeness of God. Now, how about this? Just some other bonuses. Um, Perfect taste buds, perfect food, perfect feasting, but you'll never get fat because you're perfect. Will we continue to explore? Yeah, I think we'll explore lakes and mountains, animals. You know, right now there are... uh, Animals at the bottom of the sea. 
that nobody knows about. Now, occasionally they go down and you've ever seen the one with the little, the little lamp? And you go, why would God create all this life that we never get to see? Oh, we'll get to see it. Right? Um, what about exploring other planets? You go, well, won't we be like back in the Garden of Eden, Eden running around in loincloths and no technology? What makes you think that? Will the technology that built the Apple computer die? Or will those in resurrected bodies with brains that can remember that recreate and do even more amazing things technologically? What about the arts? God loves to be worshipped creatively. Music will be awesome. Yes, you get your own style, probably. Um, there will be dance. Right? There will be creative means to worship God and express ourselves in ways you can never imagine. Now, here's the ultimate question. Will there be sports? Because if everybody's perfect, who would ever win? Right? Remember, Caleb used to ask this when we were playing chess. He's like, yeah, but if you're perfect in heaven and you're playing another perfect opponent, who's going to win? Right? Well, losing isn't a sin. I, I, I think God will give us all kinds of enjoyment. Um, you go, well, pastor, it sounds like you're saying life isn't going to be radically, oh, it'll be radically different than the way it is. But is it so different that we're just floating around on a cloud? No, there's continuity between this world and the next world. It's sinless. It's perfect. And it's in the presence of Jesus. But there is continuity. All right?